From the airport in Toulouse, France, this is Catholic Military Life, the only official podcast of the Archdiocese for the Military Services USA. I'm your moderator, Taylor Henry. And for this edition, it's my special privilege to have as my guest, retired U.S. Army Colonel Paul Hedick. Colonel Hedick, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. I look forward to this. Uh, and the backstory here, why are we in Toulouse, France? All right, well, we're on our way back from the International Military Pilgrimage. And uh, we had a little miscue here, and so we're stranded for the moment. That's correct, and I think we're making the best of it. I think we are, and I, and I actually I'm kind of glad because I had wanted to talk to you for this podcast when we were in uh, Lourdes, but our schedule was kind of tight and we just ran out of time. Absolutely. So maybe this is the Lord's will. Perhaps. Okay. So well, let's let's start it, uh, with Lourdes and work our way backward. You, okay. you had a long uh, career in the United States Army, uh, did numerous yes. uh, deployments in the Middle East. Uh, uh, so let me ask you first, what brought you to Lourdes, France? Uh, what brought me to Lourdes, France was the opportunity to go on what I believed was going to be a religious Catholic retreat with fellow veterans. But more importantly, I was looking for an opportunity to reconnect, uh, to reconnect both with uh, my Catholic religion as well as with other veterans, and what better place to do it. So when I heard about this opportunity in 2019, I signed up, and then it got pushed to 2020, but when I found out I got accepted for this, I was extremely pleased, very honored and privileged, and um, I'm going back a changed person. I want to talk more about that in just a moment, but just to fill in the blanks here, uh, uh, the uh, group that we're with is called Warriors to Lords, and we are a U.S. delegation to the International Military Pilgrimage, which takes place every year and was started right after World War II when the French and Germans came together to reconcile at the Grotto in Lourdes. And it's since grown to be a major inter international event uh, this year. Uh, it, despite COVID, there were uh, militaries from more than 30 nations represented at the uh, three-day pilgrimage. Uh, and the Warriors to Lourdes is sponsored and paid for by the Knights of Columbus and co-sponsored by the uh, Archdiocese for the Military Services. So. Tell me, what was your experience like? What, what did, did you have any kind of epiphany or any sort of, uh, just tell me about it. What was it like for you? Well, I, I, I did not have an epiphany, but I had a, uh, my journey has begun in terms of reconnecting. And uh, I truly came away with everything I was hoping for and more. Um, as you mentioned, I had five combat deployments, three in Iraq, one in Kosovo, one in East Africa, uh, 30 years in the military, mostly in special operations, civil affairs, psychological operations. But to retire and then to come back home, there's an emptiness. And to be here, as you described, amongst all these different veterans, all these different militaries, but also all the other civilians and the wounded that we had with us and so forth was so rewarding. Um, it gave me the opportunity again to feel uh, like I could serve again, but also to serve in what I believe is the best military leadership style and that's servant leadership. And there was nothing better than being out there 
in some of these formations or pushing someone in a wheelchair and just doing whatever we could to be part of an incredible team experience. I hear you. So you were in the uh, army for thirty years. Yes. Were you? Uh, are you a cradle Catholic or a convert, or what is your connection? Um, from a strong Catholic family. I see. Uh, but I sense that for a while you may have fallen away somewhat. Yes. Um, I, I think after coming back from the war, so many of us, or I guess I'll speak for myself, we we questioned perhaps some of the things that happened, and. Perhaps we step away a little bit from our religion, um, but this has made me take a step back. I hear you. Uh, the, the old uh, saying that there are no atheists in foxholes isn't necessarily true, is it? Um, well, maybe there's not, but I think after a while, <laughs> there, there's definitely not. I hear yeah. you. I yeah. hear you. Uh, it, sometimes it takes a while to process. Exactly. I mean, you're in a war zone. You went in, uh, you know, with the opening invasion Correct. in 2003 to Iraq. Correct. And uh, you're a healthy man, uh, not in a wheelchair, no. like you mentioned some of those who we uh, went on pilgrimage with. But yet we all know that uh, the physical scars and wounds of war are just the surface. Uh, do, do you experience, uh, well, can, uh, tell me about the, the emotional, the psychological, uh, the moral consequences of your experience. Well, I think what this gave me an opportunity to do was to reflect and especially to look back inwards at some of the things that occurred throughout the war. Um, as you described, um, yes, I came back, um, all my pieces are here. But I think as so many of our clergy have said and so many of the people on this pilgrimage have said, we're never the same after a combat experience. Um, so some of us have the wounds that are invisible. Um, and those are sometimes the toughest wounds to perhaps heal or at least to do some sort of first aid on. I hear you. And this was, for me, this was, uh, this was, this was first aid. Wow. So uh, let's get into the nitty gritty of your uh, career uh, in the army. You uh, you were you went in uh, what, what, 2003 the invasion. Let's start from sure. there to bring sure. this up. Well, I've had a very fortunate career. My career has been active duty reserves, Illinois Army National Guard. But as you mentioned, we got called up. My unit got called up, uh, the 308 Civil Affairs Brigade for the initial invasion in Iraq. Uh, I believe it was Christmas Eve 2002, and I think we flew to Fort Bragg on January 1st, 2003, and spent a couple of weeks there and wound up in the desert in Kuwait training, and as you and I talked about before, crossed the border the first day of the war, March 19th, with 3rd Infantry Division. And what was that like? It was an incredible experience because it was everything that we had trained for, and yet it was real. So you can do all the training in the world. We can go to NTC and JMRC and all the other training, which is important. It's essential. But to actually have that experience of actually doing it for real, um, put a whole another realism on life and, and what we were actually doing. I hear you. And at the time, we were told that you would be greeted as liberators. Was that what happened? Uh, 
you're, you're right. We So many people thought that as we crossed the border the second time of the war, basically after the Gulf War, that we would be greeted as liberators, and that really didn't occur. Um, there, there were not people throwing flowers at us. Um, the people were kind of stayed in their own cities, and unfortunately we had some that wound up you know, actually fighting against us. So it was not, uh, not a lot of people... Um, welcoming us as so many people had thought. I hear you. And I should mention, if you hear a little background noise, we're sitting here at a table in the uh, one of the concourses here at Toulouse, France, uh, waiting to, for uh, when our next flight will be. We don't know. But uh, uh, I, I'm happy that we have this moment to, to, to step aside and, and talk because you and I had a conversation earlier and I was just totally fascinated by what all you had to say about your times in Iraq and uh, Kosovo, Kosovo and uh, East Africa. So um, what, what were you, you say you were in uh, what, special ops? Uh, civil affairs. So special operations back in those days were made up of uh, civil affairs, psychological operations, um, and then, of course, your special forces are your, your special forces and your rangers. So I spent almost that entire career really in psychological operations and civil affairs. And a lot of the units we supported were anything from our divisions to perhaps the special forces units, um, other units, National Guard units, other divisions. So how much of it, what, what is civil affairs in the Army? Uh, civil affairs is best defined as civil military operations. Um, and it's that branch of the military, it's that branch of the Army where um, we are focused on a lot of the efforts having to do with the civilian population. So um, if someone, it's, it's dealing with issues in perhaps local government, infrastructure, essential services, um, dealing with some municipal matters, um, stuff like that. So, so in a way you're kind of like a, an ambassador maybe. Correct. A lot of us do uh, in civil affairs work with the United Nations perhaps, uh, NATO, uh, international organizations, NGOs, interagency organizations. Uh, the key is to try to find a way to work with these organizations to coordinate and synchronize our efforts rather than to work against each other. Um, as we know, so many of the organizations bring a lot to the table. So if we can be part of that, working together, that helps to make the mission go smoother. I see. And you were also in PSYOPs. Correct. And what kind of work did you do in that? Um, I was very fortunate in psychological operations. We do anything from um, tactical loudspeaker operations where we have soldiers with loudspeakers that can do such things as provide messaging or so forth. Um, perhaps crowd control, uh, but there's also dissemination units, and these are your units that perhaps make leaflets. They can even make such things as coloring books um, or other products that we could use. So some of the stuff we did in Iraq where we, we had coloring books for kids at schools, um, soccer balls, stuff like that, where it was just supporting some of the other efforts of other units to help build that relationship with perhaps the youth, um, perhaps Iraqi schools and so forth. So those are some of the abilities we had. So this is like building long-term generational goodwill. These kids who had these coloring books will always remember that. Exactly. And, and were the figures in the coloring books uh, 
U.S. Army personnel? No, we always worked very closely to make sure whatever we were doing, we usually worked closely with a, uh, a cultural advisor, a political advisor, uh, typical civilians who really know uh, those specifics better than we do. So, you know, a lot of those coloring books or leaflets or any of those things had, depending on the situation, perhaps pictures of soldiers with Iraqis or just maybe even animals or something. It, it was, the idea was to give something to those kids to make them smile. I hear you. And uh, so uh, you would distribute those in the schools in an effort to show the Iraqis, the Americans aren't such bad guys Correct. after all. I Correct. Uh, well, on the PSYOP side, it seems to me that you wore a white hat and a dark hat. Um, we, well, we, we, we always do white PSYOP. So um, there's three different types of PSYOP. There's white, gray, and black. And, and we, we do white psychological operations. And it's really, you know, it's, it's providing a message um, that's synchronized with the combatant commander and other units to ensure that, you know, once again, we're working together to help uh, amplify whatever that message may be. And sometimes that's done through coloring books, leaflets, printed material, flyers, and so forth. And sometimes it's even done using broadcast material, perhaps broadcasting on radio stations or broadcasting and other methods. D did the Army take over some of the radio stations in Iraq? In the very beginning, uh, we had a, a SOMS-B system, which was a mobile broadcast system, and we didn't, we didn't take over any uh, over there. We actually helped rebuild perhaps some of them, uh, but the system allowed us in the very immediate uh, start of the war to put out messages in terms of safety messages, uh, messages having to do with providing information and so forth. So it was a system that provided very basic broadcasting as well as some television opportunities. Gotcha. Okay, so you were there for during the initial invasion. Yes. Tell me about your other deployments. When sure. were those and what were those sure. like and how, how, did, how had things changed uh, sure. over that period of time? Well, as you and I mentioned, um, I was there for Operation Iraqi Freedom 1 and that was from 2003 to 2004 for approximately 15 months. And I came home from that, burned up some leave and soon after that I went to Kosovo uh, from 2004 to 2005, and I served as a battalion commander in Kosovo. Uh, came home from that and returned to my uh, reserve status, but at the same time worked as a contractor for the Navy, uh, helping to stand up their civil affairs group. Uh, then returned again to Iraq from 2007 to 2009. Now that was a, that was a rough period. That was a rough period. That was part of the surge, and I wound up uh, serving the initial part of my tour in the C-9, which would be part of, the, at that time, the 18th Airborne Corps uh, C-9 section. And that was rough. And then after that 15-month tour, I came home, burned up leave, and went back to Iraq in a very unique, challenging, and rewarding position working on a PRT, a provincial reconstruction team, uh, which were developed by the State Department. And I served on that from 2009 to 2010, uh, working for the State Department on those teams. But then, of course, my last tour was 2013 to 2014, serving in Combined Joint Task Force Horn of Africa for approximately 10 months. And, uh, of course, we don't hear much about the threat in the Horn of Africa, but right. this is also involving the war on terror yes. and uh, Muslim terrorists. Right. Um, 
So, wow. Well, first of all, I have to say thank you for your service. That's, that's above and beyond the call of duty to do five deployments in war zones. Uh, during that time, uh, your practice of the Catholic faith was what suspended somewhat, or what? What was it? Did you ever? Did you? Did you have interactions with the chaplains in the uh, Catholic chaplains in the army during that time? Well, yes, I did. In fact, I wouldn't say it was suspended. I would say it was limited. But I have only the highest regards uh, for the chaplains. Uh, all chaplains, uh, obviously, as we discussed, I'm Catholic, but at many times there were so many chaplains, and the chaplain support throughout all of those deployments were just incredible. Um, being a commander for several of those deployments, the chaplains are so important to us that without them, sometimes I believe it could be mission failure. Um, and we, we, we had the best of the best and I was just very honored to be part of working with those chaplains who were very interested a lot of times and especially the work that we were doing as civil affairs because we were out there in the community uh, and sometimes even doing some stuff with some of the local religious leaders to a certain extent. You know, you say your practice of Catholicism during this period was limited. I think that was true for any Catholic deployment yes. because there are so few Catholic chaplains now. Yes, yes. So you would wind up weeks at a time without even being able to access the sacraments. You're absolutely right. I mean, there were there were many times where, as you said, that the chaplains were so limited. Um, I know they flew around a lot. I know the chaplains we had were, were very busy, uh, but doing incredible work, uh, finding ways to get to the, the furthest outposts to be there to serve our soldiers and, and to be part of the, their spiritual life. And you mentioned how indispensable the chaplains are. My perspective from the outside looking in is that one of the indispensable functions they serve is a kind of relief valve for the rank and file and the officers because they are the only place you can go, the only person you can go in the military where you can have a confidential conversation and not worry that it's going to get back to the brass. Well, you're absolutely right, and, and that's something that many soldiers, to include myself, have been very fortunate to uh, sit with the chaplain and to have that time knowing that what we say with that chaplain will be respected by that chaplain. I see. So where are you now? Are you, when did you retire and what are you doing now? I was mandatory retired on September 1st, 2017. Uh, my last duty station was the 451st ESC in McConnell Air Force Base in Wichita, Kansas, and I returned home to my small town of Antioch, Illinois, and it was 30 years, seven days of an incredible life, uh, truly privileged and honored to serve others. Um, is there anything better than serving our nation? Absolutely. Best so, job in the world. What kind of work were you doing during those three and a half? This was after you retired right. in 2017. What kind of work so were you doing? So since that time, I've returned home and I've, I've gone into law enforcement uh, for a civilian job. I do that. But more importantly, I find a lot of time to spend with volunteer organizations. Um, I'm the senior vice commander of our local VFW. I'm the adjutant of our local American Legion. I'm a United States Army Reserve ambassador. Uh, so still very busy doing work like that for the Army Reserves. I serve as Reserve Officers Association Vice President for the State of Illinois. I serve on the Lake County um, Veterans Assistance Commission. 
Um, so I find that connection with veterans to be spiritually rewarding and once again allow me that opportunity to serve others. Now, one of the things we hear about a lot regarding returning veterans after a deployment in a war zone is all of a sudden, or, or you know, separation from the military, is that a life that to a large extent is run on adrenaline is all of a sudden changed and things are quiet. And uh, there's a lot of emotional and psychological fallout that comes with that. Is that apply to your case? I, I, I agree completely with you. You are absolutely right, and it does apply to my case, and I think it applies to many veterans like myself. Uh, we leave the, the military, uh, sometimes voluntarily or sometimes mandatorily. Um, but, you know, we had that connection with our comrades, um, other soldiers, other civilians, other leaders, that chain of command. And when you leave that, sometimes it's very hard to walk away, uh, especially when it's been such a big part of your life. But I think what's been wonderful is finding other ways to serve. So now I serve in law enforcement, but I think more importantly, the volunteer work I do. I'm also involved with the Boy Scouts uh, and stuff like that. So it's another way to continue to serve. Um, I guess I look at it as I'm not serving so much with the military more, but perhaps I'm still able to give something back with some of the organizations I work for. I'm talking to retired U.S. Army Colonel Paul Hedick. Uh, and we are at the Toulouse Airport uh, waiting for when we uh, will fly out back to the States. We've just come back from the Warriors to Lords Pilgrimage, uh, which is the basically the U.S. delegation to the International Military Pilgrimage to Lords. It takes place every year, although this is the first actual uh, pilgrimage that's taken place in three years due to COVID. So um, tell me a little bit more about you. You, you said that you'd had a, a, po a positive experience at Lourdes. Tell me more about that. Sure. Well, I think like some of the leaders talked about when we first flew in the first night that this, the opportunity here in terms of the events that were planned for us, it was up to us for what we wanted to make of it. But I think what I found is just walking into that area, you can feel a, a spirit around you. Um, and then the different events, the Stations of the Cross, uh, the International Mass, the opening events, the closing events, the Mass that we had for the sick and those. Each one of those built almost on the other. To me, it was, it was a... a uh, days that built upon the days and reached a peak, and now we have to go home. Uh, <laughs> so the, the Warriors to Lourdes, our group was there for five days, but the actual pilgrimage was for three. Uh, but the schedule was chock full of events, yes. and uh, uh, of course being around all those militaries was colorful and interesting. It was uh, a lot of pomp and circumstance and pageantry and high uniform. Uh, you had to have felt at home in that atmosphere, along with the spiritual aspect of just being at Lourdes, right? Well, you're absolutely right. I, I felt extremely privileged and honored to have been asked to put my uniform back on and to walk in so many of these different formations to these different events, um, not only to be with our soldiers from our own military, but to experience, as you mentioned, 
so many around us. And there were quite a few uh, veterans or active duty who were in our group who had their uniforms. I remember watching you lead them down the uh, street doing the march, yes. and I said, that's a, that's a U.S. Army veteran there. <laughs> that guy knows how to lead a march. <laughs> well, you might have noticed my walk, perhaps. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so how are you going to take your experiences here back home? Well, I think this has really given me an opportunity to uh, open uh, my mind again, to open my heart again, and to open my soul again, um, and to build upon some of the different experiences here, some of the different uh, things that I've learned uh, from those in our own group, as well as those from other groups. Um, I, I am truly very blessed to have this opportunity. Are there any particular things about the weekend that stand out? I know you mentioned the Mass and the Stations of the Cross and the Mass for the Sick uh, and the general spiritual ambiance of the place. Uh, what about your interactions with some of the other pilgrims uh, and anything else that might have uh, you know, impacted your well, I think. Outlook? One of the things that will stick in my mind was how lucky we were to be right by the Ukrainian delegation. So the very opening night, as you know, the Ukrainian delegation was in front of us at the opening ceremonies. And then when we did the march for the rosary, once again, we had the Ukrainian delegation in front of us. So what an honor to be part of them. Uh, but another point, too, is we had the opportunity to, rec uh, to, to represent the Canadians who were unable to attend and to be honored to carry the Canadian flag um, with the American flag. Uh, what a great honor that was. I've been very fortunate to serve in Canada and attend several of their military schools. Um, so to be able to carry the Canadian flag, uh, once again, what a great honor. Well, I'll share with you your uh, deep uh, reaction to the presence of the Ukrainian delegation. I'm told there were 16 or 17 uh, including about a half dozen active duty U Ukrainian uh, soldiers. I choked up when yes. I saw that blue and, almost every time I saw that blue and gold flag. Yes. You know, it's like, how, how can these people uh, go through this right. and, and put up the fierce resistance right. they have? They're an inspiration to the world. Absolutely. And to actually uh, talk to them uh, well, we couldn't talk much because right. I don't speak Ukrainian. Right, right. But, but I think sometimes the uh, language transcends uh, yes. uh, uh, linguistics. Yes. I think they all understood that we were behind them completely. Yes. Um, so, uh, well, uh, do you think you would like to make another warrior? Oh, I would. I would very much like to return again. Um, now that I've experienced this, I have expectations of if I was to be accepted again uh, to build upon this. Do you miss being in the Army? I do. I miss it every day. There's no better job in the world, no better job than to serve others. And uh, as a colonel, the greatest, the greatest privilege I ever had was that of being a servant leader, of doing whatever I could to take care of my soldiers and to do everything I could to, to make sure they came home safely. Are you still in touch with some of those with whom you serve? Yes, yes. We're very fortunate. Uh, I stay in touch with many of my friends. Um, who are most retired, uh, 
but very fortunate to stay in touch with them. And, you know, we lost some from sickness and cancer and one from suicide. And, you know, so you, you, you cherish those that came home. Yeah. And then you want to make sure we can do whatever we can to make sure that, that no, one, no one does something that, that they shouldn't. Now, I think we all know that suicide is a tremendous problem yes. among the veteran population. Yes. I think uh, the last figure I saw was what, we're up to what, two an hour? Or That's what like I that? thought, yes. Wow. Um, well, um, retired U.S. Army Colonel Paul Hedding, uh, who served uh, five deployments, including three in Iraq during the most heated periods of the war, also Kosovo and uh, East Africa. Uh, uh, among many other assignments that you had in the interim, it wasn't all just war for you. No. It was uh, <laughs> over a 30-year period, uh, and now increasingly active in your uh, Catholic faith. And, and one of the pilgrims with whom I was privileged to travel to Lourdes with. This was my first time to Lourdes, and I would share with you your enthusiasm about our pilgrimage, and I would love to come back to you. Thank you so much for talking to me. Well, thank you very much.